Episode 82 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with the lead sports scientist at Aston Villa, Jack Sharkey. Jack came on to talk about dealing with setbacks and failure and how we can learn from those setbacks. We spoke about answering performance questions from head coaches and managers. We touched on the multi-mechanical model, um, but I also mentioned in the episode, we didn't go into great detail on that because I know he's, he's recently done a podcast with Rob Pacey, so I'll put the link to that in the show notes. And then how to learn from, from failures as well. So Jack spoke about his career so far um, and what he's learned from some failures along the way. And I think that's a really important practice for us all to do. Ties in quite nicely with the recent episode with Liam Anderson on reflecting um, about our practice. So it was great to have Jack on. He's someone that when we've asked for recommended guests, his name comes up a lot. So it was great to finally chat to him. I hope you enjoy the episode with Jack. And as always, big thank you for listening to the podcast. We've had some really, really great um, messages, reviews um, recently. So I really do appreciate it. Just make sure that you subscribe to the podcast we're putting out quite a lot of episodes at the moment, trying to stick with the two-week during lockdown period. So just make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. And then as soon as we release the podcast, they will just go on to um, iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. So big thank you again for listening. Please share the show and enjoy the episode with Jack. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation <laughs> podcast. This is episode 82 I'm delighted today to be joined by the lead sports scientist at Aston Villa, Jack Sharkey. Jack, how's things? Very good, thank you. Very good. Bit cooped up at home, but aside from that, can't complain. Very good. I really appreciate you giving up the time and coming on, mate. I know I've listened to a lot of your work and a lot of your uh, talks and presentations recently, and, and I know it's something that we might reference in the episode with your episode with Rob recently, and then... Um, the webinars that you've done. So I really appreciate you coming on to discuss what we're going to discuss. Yeah. So just uh, thank you very much, Nathan. It's a, it's a pleasure being on the on the podcast. I've heard a lot about the, the work you do and listen to a number of podcasts and find them quite interesting. So it's an honor to be asked on. Awesome, mate. So just kick us off, Jack. I just mentioned your current role, lead sports scientist at Aston Villa. But just take us through your career so far. Okay, so... I suppose I, I came from an academic route. Um, I wasn't an ex-player or, or anything like that. I did my undergraduate in sports science, uh, but based on outdoor sports um, at Bangor University in Wales. Um, it had nothing to do with professional sports or anything like that. It was to do with mountaineering, climbing, that sort of thing, leadership skills. Um, so at that time in my career, I had no real aspirations to work in professional sport. Um, following that, I had a year out working in a gym and being an outdoor instructor as well. Um, and then it wasn't until I went to Loughborough University to do a master's in exercise physiology where that, that drive to work in professional sport came really. Um, anyone who's been to Loughborough, I'm sure everyone's aware of it, it's, it's a fantastic university to go to, to to learn about top-end athletes and working with, with the best athletes in the world. And the, the, the opportunities you get from that environment are uh, will sculpt the career that you have. Um, while there, I, I did an internship with the Nike Academy um, so that was a scheme part run by Nike and part run by the Premier League, um, or the FA, sorry, where they took kids from from clubs who'd just been released from academies and things like that and gave them a second opportunity to try and get back in the game. 
So that's where I first started working with with football and, and groups of athletes. Um, and then following graduation from there, I was looking for a few jobs. I sent a few letters out and I, I approached my local club, Burton Albion. And it was at exact, coincidentally, it was the same time that Gary Rowell was just starting his managerial career. Um, and Gary being the forward-thinking manager that he is, he wanted a sports science department, he wanted an analysis department, which the club didn't have at the time. And my latter came at that right time. So I went in, sat down with him, had a conversation with him, and he, he gave me my first opportunity in, in professional football. So I was very lucky, in a sense, um, to being at the right place at the right time to get my foot in the door. Um, the good thing as well, obviously, coming out of university, um, and into a club with no real sports science support structure in place already. Um, Gary Rout said it himself. He said, you've got a clean, clean slate, basically, to do whatever you like. So that was a great opportunity for me to learn the trade, learn what I'd, uh, apply what I'd learned at university into that real-life setting, figuring out for myself what worked and what didn't work. Um, those four seasons at Burton Albion, probably one of the most enjoyable in my career so far, like literally having no... Uh, not a massive amount of resources, working with a, a, a very small team. It was it was a good experience and I'll, I'll always like, remember those days fondly. Um, so during that time, obviously, there was a change of management. Gary Rowell went to Blues because we were doing well. Um, then Jim Floyd Haspan came in. Um, obviously, again, we just kicked on the success that, that from the groundwork that Gary put in. But obviously, Hasselbank himself really took it to another level and got back-to-back promotions to the champ. Um during that time, Jimmy went to uh, QPR. Uh, Nigel Clough came in as well, so I got an opportunity to work with him. And it came to the summer after that second promotion where I had Gary Rowett at Blues and Hasselbank at QPR offer me positions. And I chose to go to QPR um, with Hasselbank. Um, obviously, spent a, a season there. There was a change of management. Holloway came in. Um, and then at the end of that year, uh, I heard of this opportunity at Aston Villa to come to be lead sports scientist there. It was close to home and at the time it just felt the right move for me to take. And three seasons now and this is where I am today. So that's a, a quick crash course of how I've got to where I am now from academia. Um, it's not the same route that everyone's taken, but this is, this is how I've got to my position in the Premier League now. And I've heard you speak recently on Rob's podcast about the approach to Burton. And I'm sure many people will be in the same boat that they've sent letters out to clubs. And it probably sounds from a lot of people like it's really smooth that you sent this letter and you just appeared in this job. And I know there's been setbacks and struggles along the way. So do you want to touch on some of those? And, and just ex- just initially, actually, just expand on that story with, with approaching Burton because a lot of people will be in the same boat. They'll be trying to reach out for this first opportunity and it's not always as easy as just as just contacting clubs and it and I know that's how it works for you wasn't it yeah yeah I was very I was very fortunate in that sense but just because of the career path I've had and it, on an outside perspective it might seem that I've been successful in a sense to go from that level to where I am now but don't get me wrong there was a lot of failures along the way um so that even from the internship um level when I got to the Nike Academy I don't mention that before that I got rejected from a number of internships at different sports from uh, uh, cricket, swimming, triathlon, all these different organisations that wouldn't even touch me. Um, So after a a fourth or fifth failure of of trying to get into these internship positions and seeing other people get them, um, I had to think outside the box a little bit because the one thing that I was lacking was 
that experience to even get that internship position. But at the same time, how do I get that experience without the internship? So it, I, was, I was stuck in Catch-22. So the way I went around it at the time was there were people on the master's course who were aspiring athletes as well. So one of the people I worked with was Crystal Lane. She's a GB paracyclist, for those who don't know. And I offered my services to her to do gym work with her, start to get that experience with her. And then I got to understand the processes that were that people followed to try and get, uh, well, to prepare for the Paralympic Games in 2012. Um, it allowed me to observe what was happening with GB uh, cycling as well. And then I got my experience. So when I went to that internship opportunity with Nike, I had a little bit more substance to my, to my application. Um, and there's, there's loads of athletes out there who aren't at the top of the game but need that support, who haven't got the resources or funding uh, at the moment. And things like that haven't changed. And I used that to, to broaden my CV. Um, Albeit when I applied to Burton, that that was a bit of luck, a bit of chance. Um, but that, yeah, you sometimes have to think outside the box to try and get that experience first before you move on. Um, and then obviously you've got actually working in the football environment as well. Um, when people get promoted or they have success, they're, they're more than keen to tell you about it via social media and other platforms. Um, but one thing that you have to accept as part and parcel of the job is failure. And I think from my own experiences, those failures are necessary to actually get that subsequent success. So with Burton Albion, there was back-to-back promotions, but the previous year, we lost in the final against Fleetwood at the player final in League Two. The year previous to that, we lost in the playoff semifinals against Bradford. So we had two successive years of getting to the playoffs and failing, and that's what, it could have crushed us, but it actually made us stronger as a group to actually, in that third year, to actually just go on a run and, and get out of those uh, those lower two leagues. So you need those failures as well. So even with, with Aston Villa, obviously we got promoted into the Premier League last year, season before, we lost in, in the player final against Fulham. So you have to have these experiences to build on uh, and make you stronger and understand what hasn't and has worked to actually lead to further success. No one is going to come out of university or be an applied practitioner and know what it takes to win without having experienced those failures in the first place. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that's something that probably a lot of people overlook, isn't it? That teams will go through a, a lot of different experiences before achieving success a lot of the time. But it's how you reflect on it and how you act on it, isn't it? So what's the sort of process from your point of view in your role when you've been through yeah. these, these times with clubs, you get to the end of the season and it might ending staying in the league or whatever it is what's your your process or your mindset from that point what when when there's failure or yeah or yeah yeah well both really so, both I suppose if I've been very brutally honest when you have the failure you need that period where you completely switch off you need the period to, to we have celebrations when we when we have promotions and we have celebration parties but I've probably been more drunk after failures to be honest um so you have that time where you reflect and you feel bad on yourself and you lick your wounds and you feel rubbish but it's over time you start to look back and reflect like what was wrong on that particular day what did we do differently what what can we do next time and one of the the biggest driving stimulus for a player's motivation that you can really tap into is that failure and people thinking that they're not good enough that i found that you can use that so much with a player to motivate them to, to prove people wrong. I think proving people wrong is a massive motivational tool that 
that we need to be using with these players. Um, because like I said, by having these failures, they're coming into the next stage with something to prove um, to, the, to the people who don't feel they're capable of playing at that higher level of the competition saying, okay, you're not good enough to go to the leaderboard. And we're going to prove wrong. We're going to take it to the next level. Um, I remember Gary Rowell during post-match or pre-match motivation talks sometimes. He, he used to do it where he'd get the local paper and he'd read what the manager or what the, the press have said about this team. What, what, if it's negative, not all the time, just a couple, handful of times. And that spurred us on. It spurred us on to say, you know what, that's what they think of us. We're going to prove them wrong. And even with the, the promotion we got with Burton, the first one, um, was it the first one? Yeah, so... Warsaw were close on our tails to getting into the playoffs as well. I know this was, sorry, uh, when we're going from League One to the Champ. Warsaw had come out in the press and said that Burton will be sat there drinking their tea and biscuits, not worrying about us, but we're going to close them down. One lad had read this in the paper. He was fuming. He was absolutely fuming. And all the lads got together and like, we were so angry about this article that had come out. And it really drove us forward to make sure that we weren't going to go into the playoffs and we were going to get automatic promotion. And I remember after the game, all the players were sat there with the tea and biscuits for the first picture after we got promoted um, to prove a point. So, yeah, you, you need to use those, what people think of you, to prove them wrong sometimes. And that only comes sometimes by having failed in the first place. So, yeah, there's, there's certainly ups and downs, but that's part and parcel of the job. You have to, you have to appreciate that. It's how you come through it, which will dictate how, how your career will unfold. And do you think that relates as well to practitioners? Because we're talking there from a player point of view or a team point of view, but as a practitioner as well, proving proving people wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's, it, it's part and parcel of the job that you will doubt yourself on a regular basis. There's no practitioner really who hand on heart can say they know all the answers because anyone who says that is usually wrong or, or too naive in their career to understand where they're at. But... Um, you need to, to learn from those mistakes. I've certainly made mistakes along the way with, with the return to play process of players, with maybe pushing players a little bit too hard in certain situations by not listening. But you, you need to learn from those those mistakes uh, and move on. I remember with, um, I remember another a story at Burton. I remember doing this running session. I won't need a player, but I remember having a big bust up with him because he wasn't applying himself in the running sessions. And he was a senior player as well, so it was quite a big bust up at the time. And at the time, I was distraught. I came away from him, thinking about it, dwelling on it, thinking, oh, God, he's never going to look at me the same way. He's going to think of me badly. How am I going to get this work to work in the future? At the time, you don't show that, but you think it behind the scenes. And anyway, he came into the, the treatment room after that session and just potted about as if nothing had happened. I says, oh, can we talk about it earlier? Can we just like, lay it on the table, get it addressed so we can move on? And he didn't understand what I was on about. And it's from a player's perspective, and this was early in, like very early in my career, it's just part and parcel of football. You just you take that hit, you move on, and the next day you'll be fine again. And that's something you need to learn quite quickly as a practitioner and as, as the players and so on, because you will take a hit, you will have a defeat, but you have to move on quickly. You can't dwell on it, you just get on with it. And that was a big lesson for me in my in my career development, it's just, just get on with it, basically. Uh, I think that's a great bit of advice and something that we probably only learn through experience as well, isn't it? And going through these times, like you just named some some actual events that have happened. But I wanted to ask Jack, in terms of working with different managers, and you don't necessarily need to name names, but when managers present a performance question to you that they want X or Y out of out of their team, what's your approach to that? What's your mindset going into 
planning the phases of training? Um, well, I think I think we're quite lucky in a sense. One thing that's worked for me as a practitioner certainly is we can be completely objective about it, about the situation. We don't need to be concerned about how they played technically or performance-wise or anything like that. We can our responsibilities as sports scientists, which I think a lot of people forget sometimes, is ultimately we're capable for the physical performance of that team, the, the athletic ability of that team. That's certainly what my training has been doing. It's about exercise physiology and how best to prepare them for that performance. So when we come to these performance-based questions that I'm generally asked, it's to do with how do we best prepare them physically for competition. So it's quite black and white sometimes when you say, this is the amount of training they've done, this is what we need to do to, to get to a higher level or, or play at the, the level which you expect them with that particular style of play. So um, it's important that you don't fall into the trap of being... Um, subjective and opinion-based you need to not all the time but for the most part have that objectivity through testing and monitoring to validate your argument and support the reason that you're giving towards the coaches and, and that helps a lot i've seen practitioners in my time fail because they fail to grasp that they're not a coach they're not a the manager they're, they're not there to make those type of decisions we're there to to support the players support the coaching staff to best physically prepare these players for competition um, you will get these questions now and again, but maybe go into a different area and you can give your opinion then when they ask for. It's important to always have that objectivity that you uh, when you present your answers to these coaches. Yeah, definitely. And I've heard you talk before on, on subjective um, opinions in terms of yeah. RPEs. And I know, I know you went into detail with Rob, but just want to touch on that, on your views, because like, this comes from your experience as well. Yeah. Yeah, so so back in the day when I was working in League Two, and like I said, with with limited funding and and resources, um, and having that that blank canvas to do whatever you pleased, I tried loads of things that didn't really work for me, and I felt like they were a waste of time at that particular moment when I could be investing my time in other areas. Um, and one thing at that particular time, rightly or wrongly, so was I started doing RPs, which you learn about at university and getting daily scores and subjective scores and daily monitoring questionnaires, how they're sleeping, things like that. And I was spending a lot of my time going around the players asking these questions when at that particular time, because I had so many other responsibilities, basically leading the group sessions, taking forwards, doing the match preparation, all this type of work. And then I was going around asking these questionnaires. You could just tell that the players, one, were giving false responses because they felt that it would influence their, their, um, their selection. Um, or how they were perceived by the coaches and certainly us and I ended up just getting rid of it and I overlooked those subjective scores because with that small group environment you, you got to know them personally as well so there's a lot of players I still keep in contact from from the, those years um, because of the relationships I had with those particular individuals that being said um, with more with larger departments and multidisciplinary departments, you might not have that contact with the players. I certainly don't probably have that that closeness that I had with that smaller, smaller backroom staff department that I had before with the players. But I, ju- I just kind of pushed that away because of that environment and, and overlooked it. So, yeah, there are certain things that I've overlooked in the past, but only because that time and, and situation meant that I needed to. 
I just wanted to give you a couple of quick updates on our online community. So we just recently posted a thread with some future podcast guests. We've got some future people confirmed, but then some also some guests that we've reached out to. So if you are already a community member, just head over to the community and post any questions you'd like us to put to those guests. Um, We've also just confirmed a couple of really, really good upcoming webinars as well. So there's some guests that we've confirmed that we're really looking forward to um, releasing the webinars, some really top webinars that will be available to our community members. So we're looking forward to bring, bringing you those. And if you aren't already a community member, you can go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab at the top. And if you sign up there, you get a free month access to the community. And then it is only £4.99 per month going forward. After that, you get access to all the webinars that are on there currently, including our latest one from Hamish Munro, which is called Velocity-Based Training in Professional Football. Really, really top webinar, that one. Um, And there's plenty of others on there, including all of our network meeting presentations. So if you haven't been to our network meetings, they're obviously not running at the moment, but as soon as we come out of lockdown and get the green light, we are going to be setting our network meetings up again. A great opportunity to meet other coaches and grow your network, but we also have speakers at those Uh, meetings as well so the presentations from those meetings or previous meetings are available on the community as well as when we do get the meetings back up and running future meeting presentations will be going up there as well so there's plenty of content on there so go and check it out footballfitfed.com click the community tab and sign up there enjoy part two with jack and just what i wanted to, to go into next is just talking us through some successful strategies that you've implemented at, at Villa, at, the, at your current club, but also previously throughout your career so far. Okay, so I'd say so probably one of the most successful in terms of monitoring and, and strategies has been the work surrounding quantifying training for the, for the coaches and, and building that relationship with them. Um, that is an obstacle that a lot of practitioners have, is having that that ability to communicate effectively with coach and player. Um, one way that has worked for me is the, the concept of a multimodal or multi-mechanical approach to quantifying training. Um, for those who are unaware of that, that practice, it's basically taking the individual metrics that you monitor from training and combining them together to create an absolute score of volume and intensity relative to a game. So post a session, you can go to a coach and say, today's session was 60% volume of the game but we did it at 100% intensity or you may go to a coach and say okay that particular possession drill or that particular small-sided game for your defensive back four and your central midfield players the intensity is replicable of what they do in games 100% intensity but your wide players and forward are only working about 60% intensity of the game so what can we do to make sure they're training how we want them to play a weekend Um, because one one common theme that I found with the coaches I've worked with is that Every coach wants to train how they play. They want to train with intensity. I've been lucky in that sense. Um, so this model in this way of presenting training load data to the coaches has fit into that model um, or that philosophy, should I say. So that, that's, that's been a successful um, uh, model for me um, that has certainly worked with the players and coaches. Um, but yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And I and I, I keep referencing the, the podcast with Rob because I have listened to 
that that you did with him and you went into great detail on the multi-mechanical model and if anyone wants to go and check that out i'll put the link in the show notes so that they can go and listen to that and we did say we were going to talk about a lot of things i just we didn't want to repeat exactly what you went through in the podcast with rob but i do urge people to go and listen to it because you've you've gave a great insight there into the model and what you've created but i think it's really really beneficial for coaches and that is a, a problem that a lot of coaches have isn't it that the the, the ability to communicate what they want in the right way yeah well the, the reason it, that this model and approach has resounded with me quite a lot is because i was of the same mindset i was constantly regurgitating these single metrics i still do it's still important that you look at these metrics in isolation like total distance the volume of high speed running the volume of sprint distance and things like this but the way that i was presented at the time was just these individual metrics in isolation and the message i was trying to get to the coaches wasn't what I wanted it to be. They were getting to the stage where they were looking at and saying, okay, they've done seven, eight kilometers, so that's good. It had no context whatsoever to the game of football. And it frustrated me in a sense because if you're looking at these metrics in isolation, they don't show that that session was particularly good or worthwhile to prepare them for the game. Um, that you, you, We as practitioners could go out and do those distances, but it doesn't mean we're prepared best for the game. But you need to look at it in relation to the other metrics together. Um, and it felt better for me. I felt more confident in what I was saying to the coaches rather than just like regurgitating numbers and sheets. And you tend to find if you're just going in day in, day out with these with these sheets with no real action to take from it, it's pointless. It's completely pointless. So this approach led us to have um, discussions that would influence practice, and that, that is the crux of it. What we're doing must influence practice, otherwise what is the point of what we're doing? So that is the fundamental message that I'd give to sports science practitioners when they're having this blue sky thinking or reflective time. Um, just think, what are we actually changing the game? Are we actually improving these players? That's that's what you should be asking of yourself with everything you um, do with these players. Yeah, that, that ties in a lot with the communication between the staff members, doesn't it? Going up to head coaches or managers and, and their, their philosophies. I think they were one of the ones... I don't know whether it was recently, but a few years ago was the stats that came out about Barcelona and on the distance covered and it wasn't the highest, but they were winning leagues and champions leagues and all the rest of it. So if you're taking that single metric and wanting them to cover more ground, but they're winning everything, it's, it's, it's context is absolutely key, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I felt this just gives it a little bit more context to what you're doing. Um, yeah. And then on the flip side of that, these have been some positive things that you've put in place. And, uh, and it's a tough one for people to discuss, but what about some things that haven't worked quite as well? Uh, yeah, I suppose, I suppose there's been a number of things over the years that you employ that have probably been a waste of time. Um, there are certain things that still frustrate me to a sense in, with, the, with the applied work I do and some of the arguments against what we're doing. Um, so... For instance, plyometrics is, is a key one on the pitch. I've come across a number of um, people who disagree that, that athletes aren't strong enough to do some of the plyometric work we do on the pitch and they need to get stronger within the gym first before you do it. Um, but then in a sense, if you, you digress too much and, and not do anything until that athlete is perfect to do it, then you'll never actually end up doing it, certainly once the season started. Um, so I kind of just overlook that and just do it anyway. Um, rightly or wrongly so. Um, uh, I, suppose, I suppose a lot of my queries and things that 
work and don't work come around that SNC uh, environment. Um, the whole aspect of Nordics, I've got rages about that with whether they're beneficial or not from just from my own experiences, I found it conflicts the evidence massively. Um, but that that's that's for for another time. I won't get into that because it will just start a heated debate that I'll be probably dealing with right now. But um but yeah there, there's there's certainly things that I'll hold my hand up that I've done wrong in the past that um that I would do differently now. But like I said at the start of the talk, without those learning curves and experiences I wouldn't be the practitioner I am today. And I'm sure there are things I'm doing now that will be incorrect that um, that I'll, I'll look back in five years' time and think, why the hell was I doing that? I saw an amazing quote recently, and I can't remember who it's from, so it's an absolutely shocking um, thing to bring up. But it tied, in, it tied in with this in terms of drawing from other people's experiences and that we do have to make mistakes. We do have to go through these experiences of making mistakes. But at the same time, and this will tie in with yeah. the next question, really. There's a lot of people out there, like yourself, that have been through different leagues. They've experienced different budgets, different, um, like I said, different leagues, different teams, different managers. And we can learn from them, can't we? There's a lot of things that we can take. But at the same time, we do need to, to experience it ourselves, don't we? Um, so I think that's yeah. quite an important thing that you, you have to go through those, those experiences to come out the other side, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to, you have to take away... Um, take away from your own experience. But I think that also stresses the reason to learn from senior players and other practitioners as well. Um, because one thing I always put towards the players I work with, whether it's true I've always found from my own experiences that the players who have relationships with the senior players within the group tend to have a longer career and tend to be more applied in the work that they do. And so with you have to learn from from their experiences um and a lot of my development has come from sitting down having those conversations with those senior pros like john terry glenn whelan um jim for haspelin now all the all the managers you work with the senior uh, senior ex-players as well uh, Rory's lab, Mila Yedinak, all these ex-pros who've been in the game for so long that, that they're, the information you get from them is invaluable. Um, so you have to, while that opportunity is there, speak to them, learn from them. Um, don't get me wrong, you can still help them, but at the same time, you can you can gain a lot from, from their experiences as well. I think that can be mutually beneficial, can't it? Because if you, I'm sure a lot of the listeners, if you think about your current situation and, and your squad um, and possibly the different nationalities and the different leagues that covers and then the experiences that they've been through, there is a lot that you can take from them, isn't there? And that's not to say, like you've just said, that's not to say that you can't improve them. Uh, that's just to say that you drop the ego and you, and you do, you openly discuss things and try and learn from them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, you tend to find those players who are at the, the, the more senior aspect of their career um, they're, they're willing to have these conversations with you they've been in the game that long that they've spoke to many practitioners and, and, and seen so many different things that it's good to finally get that opinion from them because they're probably going to be a little bit more reluctant to do that earlier on in, the, in their career um, and you can have some really great conversations with these people and take a lot from, from the work that you're doing and like I said to get the younger players to learn from that as well 
is invaluable. Um, I've seen first-hand players who have had that shift and had more involvement with those senior players. Take Jack Greenish, for instance, a couple of seasons ago where you had in that environment a lot of senior pros and after training they'd, they'd be doing um, head tennis in the changing room with JT and, and Snodgrass. And he'd be there for hours after training and it just had a positive effect on on the way he went about training and that was a very successful year for him. So it, it's, 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 there's no question that you need to tap into these senior players and the fact that that have been a push to try and get these senior pros into coaching roles as well will only benefit the game. And a seamless link here, Jack, in terms of talking about players learning from experienced players. We're going to talk about um, practitioners learning from experienced practitioners. So what about yourself? Who's been some uh, big influences on your career? Um, I suppose from practitioner-wise, it. Like I said, when I went into my first club, there was no other sports scientists there. So it was difficult to learn other than from the coaches themselves and, and the physio who was there. So that's maybe why it's driven me to learn so much from them. Um, but probably the most notable practitioner I've worked with, who I've, I've taken most from, would be Chris Barnes. Um, I feel he is uh, obviously one of the, the forefathers of sports science within, within football and his way of assessing and analysing the game um, has always been about giving it context. Um, but he did a talk recently with the MDT performance um, webinar with Steve Barrett, and that, that's fascinating in, in my sense the way he, he tries to quantify the game into uh, mechanical and locomotive loads and bringing them together. But yeah, I'd, I'd say Chris Bonds has probably been one of the most influential practitioners um, on my journey so far, and he is he's great to just just ring up and have a chat and go for a beer with um, and just pick his brains on different things. Um, but yeah. What about any others, mate? Any any others, in, not in just in terms of sports <laughs> science, but in terms of other people that have had an influence, like learning from outside of, of sport, uh, well, outside of football, looking at sport as a whole, or is there anyone else? Um, I've, I've taken from a, a great deal of practitioners. To I've, I try and regularly visit clubs and um all the sporting organisations and you always pick up little bits and bobs um, whether that's going to the Birmingham Royal Ballet and seeing the preparation they do to best prepare their, their, their team of dancers for competition because their injury rates are like they just don't get injured even though they're doing these ridiculous feats and they're smoking all day they just don't get injured but you look at the preparatory work they're doing heel raises 50 heel raises every day just as part of their preparation and you, you can draw from these experiences and apply them to the footballers and, and, and take from that um, I went on a trip quite recently to, to Germany to look at Leverkusen and Dortmund and see the environments that they've got set up over there. And rightly or wrongly so, both two successful teams, but they completely differed in their approach. One was very clinical, the other was very um, more about team cohesiveness and togetherness. And it was, it was fascinating drawing from those experiences as well. Um, I'm very lucky in a sense that at the moment we've got a head of performance who's come from Australia, who's worked with a lot of high performance teams over there. And he's an incredibly smart individual and you can really tap into him to fight, um, for tips and advice. And yeah, I'm certainly learning a lot at the moment from, from some of the recommendations he's given. So um, it, it never stops really. And I, I like these webinars and, and workshops and things like that. You always draw from little bits and bobs. But to actually go in and see hands-on experience of people working, that's, that's where I've got a lot of my, my ideas from. Um, I was very fortunate in the sense that when we were at Burton, our training ground was um, 
St. George's Park. So just to give an explanation to settle, but Burton, Burton's in close proximity to St. George's Park. They don't own the training ground. They rent St. George's. So we report to the tra- stadium, drive over to St. George's Park, train there, drive back at Kings, and then we'll be done. We'd have like our own gym set up um, uh, at the stadium. So while there, obviously when you had the likes of Hasselbank there, he'd know the people at Chelsea when they come over, so he'd be able to go and watch them train. And it's, it's that, those opportunities to see those people train in that environment were, were invaluable, really. Um, so, like I said, when you, when, when you come in at the start of your career or at any point in your career, to get those experiences is, is a definite must. And I've seen time and time again practitioners who become institutionalised and stuck with the club without being asked to go and look at um, other people and seeing what they're, what they're doing. But you have to reach out and still touch base with other people. Yeah, there's definitely plenty of opportunities out there if you're willing to go and put yourself out and search for them, isn't there? But in terms of the role you're in now, Jack, when we're speaking to, because that, that's relating a bit more to practitioners that are in clubs and they can go and reach out to people and they can share um, some of the stuff that they're doing at their club. But what about some younger practitioners? What, what advice would you give to them that are trying to get that first step into the game? Um. The best bit of advice I can give them, um, because I don't want to be a hypocrite, in my position, I I get inundated with people asking for um, opportunities, internships, work programs, things like that, which um, a lot of the time I have to reject and I'll try and give them advice at the same time. I I think you can go down that route of asking people and sending letters and, well, if someone ignores you or says no, there's no harm lost. You're not going to do yourself an injustice. But, I think what worked for me and what I can certainly suggest for other people to do is one thing that is invaluable is experience. And like I said, there's still plenty of opportunities out there if you look in the right areas. So just because you're not getting experience at the top Premier League club or a championship club doesn't mean that experience at lower league clubs or with individuals in other sports who are just starting on their career that you can't have a mutually beneficial uh, relationship with them. And, And that's where you need to to be focusing on your, your time. Still send those letters off to bigger clubs, but just don't get disheartened if you get rejected because there's still plenty of other opportunities that you can go out and get. Um, one thing that's been a shift in the, in the industry while I've been working is the qualifications that you need to get these opportunities as well. So when I first started out, I didn't have any qualifications with regards to like UKSEA bases. And these are things that I've got accredited while in the job. But you see it time and time again now where internships require that or you're working towards as a prerequisite to even being considered for that opportunity, which makes it equally as hard to, to get these jobs because, as we know, sports science is probably the the most what well, yeah, is the most populous degree in the country. Um, there are around 11,000, 12,000 sports science graduates every year. So there's a lot of people vying for these smaller positions. So it's understandable that clubs are asking for these qualifications to try and whittle down who is actually going to improve the club and not. Um, so rightly or wrongly, so that's the way it's gone. So there's those qualifications you work towards as well. But for me, get that experience where you can. And it doesn't matter that you haven't got a name tied to it as well. Um, if you're an intern at a Man City or an intern at some lower league club, it doesn't matter. You're still gaining valuable experience. And from, from, from me, I probably respect the person who's worked in a, a restricted environment more than anything because they know actually what's important. They know what they, they should and shouldn't be doing and how to act in that environment. Um, 
Yeah, yeah I think loads of people on the podcast have said something similar. I think, thinking back, I think Dave Carolan said something about um, one of his early opportunities being where he learned the most because he had nothing. He didn't have many resources or anything like that. And that's where you do have to really get creative, isn't it? And start thinking outside the yeah. box. Yeah. And you tend to find a lot of these practitioners have started from environments that have been outside the box. Um, Chris Barnes was was a lecturer um, before coming into, into sports science. Uh, Dave Carroll, as you said, came from an environment where there wasn't much opportunities there. You've got... Um, uh, ben Rosenblatt at England who's not necessarily come from a football environment but come from another environment and even with myself it wasn't a football environment my training it was outdoor sports and it, you tend to find actually that these top end practitioners have come from varying environments so it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to put all your eggs in one basket in a sense and say okay just going to get experience with football see other sports as well you can learn so much like I said before from visiting other people went to GB Rowan a few weeks ago um, Sarah Mosley there who's their, their lead sports scientist um, I did the master's course with her at the same time and she's gone down that direction but the stuff you learn and the things that they're doing with those athletes is is inspiring really so it's good it's good to tap into to what you can and, and people are around you and they, they come in different environments like when you're on a degree course, you'd be surprised how many people in that environment are actually going to go on to other areas that you can tap into later. So, yeah, use them. Yeah, that's the important of your network, isn't it? And that you stay in touch with people because you never know where you're going to cross paths again in the future. Um, I was going to ask, Jack, just going forward, I know it, it's, and we've done so well to go all this time without mentioning the, the current situation, but I was going <laughs> to talk about what have you got coming up? Obviously, there's, there's hopefully the season, the rest of the season. But in terms of you personally, have you got any uh, speaking engagements or anything coming up? Uh, to be honest, no, not really. <laughs> um, so one thing I'm trying to focus on more than anything is obviously getting the team, team to, uh, to be physically stronger. Um, and that takes up a lot of your time. I remember when... I first started out, I had a lot of extra things on the side that I was doing. So I was doing, obviously, my job at Burton Albion, but then I had spin classes, I was doing PT, and I was doing all these other things at the same time to try and get a little bit extra income, which was understandable because I wasn't getting paid much. Um, and I remember having a conversation with Gary out and explaining that, oh, I'm tired, I was doing all this stuff. Like, just in a passing conversation, it wasn't like I was moaning or anything. Um, and I, I don't know why it always stuck with me. It says, if you really want to make it in this job, you have to focus 100% on it. And that's what I did. I thought, do you know what? I am, I am physically tired doing all this extra stuff. So I got rid of the classes. I got rid of the PT. I got rid of like, the boot camps, things like that. And just focused purely on the job. And I, that was a turning point in my career a little bit, just to, to say, do you know what? This is what I am. I don't need to focus on anything else. I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, focus directly on, to, um, on the job at hand. So that, I, I don't tend to do that much in a sense externally. Um, I do want to try and add to the field of sports science and there is research that's going to be coming out surrounding that multi-mechanical approach to quantifying training. So hopefully we can look at the lines of getting that published soon. Um, but yeah, that's it really. I've got nothing to plug, unfortunately. <laughs> no, that's fine, mate. And then if anyone wants to reach out, Jack, if they've got questions um, or they want to reach out and ask anything, is there any anywhere that they can do that? Yeah, yeah. So I'm on social media platforms. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, rarely on Instagram but um, at Sharky Stories is my handle so 
I'm willing to give advice where needed. Um, like I said, I try and reply to as much as I can. Um, just give people a bit of advice when they first starting out because it can be a daunting, a daunting time in your career and and it can be a bit upsetting or not upsetting, but disheartening to not get any replies. So I'll try and reply as best as I can. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the best place to reach out. That's awesome, mate. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, Jack. I think it's been some great stuff there. Um, and I'll, I'll put some links in regarding the previous podcast you did with Rob, but then also the, the webinar that you've done um, that's available. So um, I really encourage the guys to go and check that out as well because I know some great stuff on there. So massive thank you for coming on, mate. No problem at all. No problem. Thank you for having me. Cheers, Jack. Thank you for listening to episode 82 and also thank you for your continued support in listening and um, sharing the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Big thanks to Jack for coming on as well. It was great to chat with him. You can f- go and follow him on uh, Twitter. He's at Sharky Stories. So go and give him a follow and keep up um, to date with what Jack's got going on. And some takeaways from me, using failure for motivation so I think it's, it's often seen as a negative thing when we fail on something, but when I speak to more and more practitioners, especially practitioners that have got plenty of experience, they always relate back to when things didn't work, but the, mainly the lessons they took away from that. So I think that's a big learning curve for any practitioners listening, that we learn from our failures and, and take things forward onto future practices. He also touched on learning from senior players. And I think he spoke about as well um, tying in with uh, trying to get players tying in with senior players as well, like influences, which was really good to hear. But I think it's something that we possibly have have um, looked past in the in the past, where we can actually learn from senior players. There's a lot of players, and I know Jack named a few, um, including uh, John Terry and a few others that have obviously got vast amounts of experience and we can learn from them but that doesn't mean as well that we can't we can't help them we can't um, add something to their preparation but there's definitely plenty of things we can learn from them as well so they were my key takeaways it'll be great to hear from from yours as well I know a few people have posted recently on Twitter and Instagram in terms of their takeaways on recent episodes. So please continue doing that because I love to hear what you've taken away from the episodes. It doesn't obviously doesn't have to be the same as what I take away, um, but I'd love to hear what you guys take away as well. And as always, please share the show. Get it out to as many people as we can. If you're sharing it on Instagram or Twitter, just tag other people in it that you think may be interested in the content. Um, and it'd be great to just get it out to as many people as possible. And just make sure as well that you subscribe to the show because that gives us an idea on numbers in terms of the listeners too. So big thank you as always for listening. I hope everyone is staying safe and well in lockdown and we'll speak to you again next week.